Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Welcome Space Monkeys. We're here for another episode of Cycling in Alignment and today I'm going to talk about dispelling belief systems or false beliefs in cycling. And I get going on some things in this discussion and I have to preemptively correct myself or refine what I said. In the conversation with my Gemini selves, I talk about power and I also talk about some physics terms, including momentum and inertia. And I kind of chucked these terms around a little bit. And then later, as I was listening to the episode, I realized I needed to go back and make sure that I knew what the heck I was talking about. Because what's the point in me having a podcast if I just bark stuff off and mouth vomit random concepts but don't really say anything we'd like to say things of substance right otherwise what is the point so at one point i'm discussing riding up a climb and how that changes the physics of riding and i get into inertia and momentum and had to go back and do a high school physics class refresher on that to make sure i knew what i was trying to say and to be clear inertia is the resistance of an object to change its velocity but that object doesn't have to be at velocity in order for inertia to apply. An object has inertia whether or not it's at speed or not at speed. So a rock has a lot of inertia. It takes a lot of force or work to begin a giant boulder to, uh, to make a giant boulder move down a hill, for example, or move it down your block into your yard. I'd like to have more rocks in my yard. So that would require the changing of their inertia. Momentum is the product of an object's mass and velocity. So a really heavy object that's moving very quickly has a lot of momentum. So on the flats, a big rider who's going quickly, it take, they have a high amount of momentum. That rider has a lot of momentum. And that means that they can overcome forces like rolling resistance and coefficient of friction more easily than a small rider. They're less subject to these forces or these forces have less impact on their forward velocity. That's why when a really big rider races a criterium, he or she can preserve more momentum through the corner than a smaller rider. So sometimes the riders can enter a corner at the same speed and the smaller rider will lose half a length. But that is frequently that equation is frequently equalized or changed by aerodynamics, of course, which are much bigger forces than what we're talking about. But those momentum definitely plays a role in the outcome of bike racing, no question. So without going further down a complicated physics rabbit hole, I'll leave it at that on the momentum and inertia discussion. But I also wanted to briefly unpack torque, power, and rotational velocity or angular angular velocity i use the term when i'm defining power power can be defined as torque times angular velocity or I, I like to break it down and simplify it into force times speed or you might say force times velocity and just to be clear i'm interchange the terms velocity and speed quite a bit and speed is a more colloquial term velocity is a little more sciencey sounding but I kind of throw those two back and forth a bit. So hopefully all that is clear and the physics can also be quite detailed on this. You can get into all kinds of equations and things, but the basic concept is that you can pedal a bike more quickly by either pushing harder or pedaling faster. Those are the important things to take away from this episode. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned on more info and updates on my office space coming soon. Thanks for the inquiries on that. Hope you're all doing well, and thanks for listening. I'm going to start this podcast off by drinking some water because it's a part of your foundational principles. Have you been paying attention, space monkeys? Water. In spite of what some people say, at some point I'll have some other coaches on this pod perhaps, including Jeff Winkler, who's of the opinion that people just don't need to drink water. And I will battle him naked battle to the death on this topic. Anyway, love you, Jeff. So today's podcast, 
Welcome listeners. Thank you for joining us today's podcast. We're going to call it something like false beliefs about cycling. The intention there is then to just talk about nothing, but you all clicked on it because you thought I was going to say something controversial. Not really. I probably will say something controversial, something that will make you think and make your little head movies turn in circles. Hopefully that's the whole point It's for us to look at our practice and our lives and critically examine what we're doing and why don't be an automaton. Don't be a mechanical robot. It's like the movie Gross Point Blank, which has John Cusack as the star. And if you haven't seen this movie, it's a vintage piece of 80s art. And he's a killer. He's a professional assassin, and he goes back to his high school reunion and finds his old girlfriend, whom he left on prom night 10 years prior. And now he's, he's disappeared, he freaked out, and he became a professional killer, and he comes back. But there's these great scenes where Alan Arkin plays his psychologist. And so John Cusack is in the office with Alan Arkin, and Alan basically is trying to fire him as a client because he knows that he's a killer and that he's professionally, he's compromised. But he also knows that John Cusack might kill him, maybe, or at least that's his fear. And so he's talking about how John Cusack has this dream where he's clapping the symbols like the Energizer bunny. And he's just this ongoing machine. And John Cusack explains this dream to him. And he's like, what? Why are you? This is my dream. You know, I don't understand what this dream means. And Alan says, it's a terrible dream. You're like an automaton. You have no brain. You have no spirit, no animus. You're just clapping endlessly like a robot. You're just doing this thing over and over again. That was a really long way to say that I think one of our primary objectives in this world is to do things with critical thought to ask yourself why you're doing it. So that's why we're going to start today's podcast off with some false beliefs about cycling because you signed up for this sport and you fell in love with it. And just like so many things, you decided you had a passion for it. And maybe you're in the process of trying to become a pro or win the Tour de France or win the world's longest gravel race or whatever. But just like all dreams, you get further down the road, the path of the dream. And sometimes you figure out that that dream isn't exactly what you thought it was. And you have to understand, do I accept the compromises? Do I accept the yuck with the good? Do I, does the passion for this sport still override all the struggle? Okay. There's some philosophy for you. There's some esoteric stuff. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's get out our weagles. False beliefs about cycling. Number one, the harder you push on the pedals, the faster you go. What do I mean by that? Well, this gets into the relationship between torque and cadence. And in my experience as a coach, most athletes tend to associate air quotes going harder and air quotes with pushing harder on the pedals. And what is the actual mechanism by which that happens? Well, we associate going harder on the bike with the physical sensation of pushing down on the pedal and having that pedal resist the pushing down. Meaning you stomp on the pedal and you feel the pedal pushing up against the sole of your foot, the orthotic or the inside of your shoe pushing up. And that is going hard. And that's a rather myopic view of how to make power on the bike. And when you understand the basic principles of how you make power on the bike and how you are looking perhaps at that paradigm with a limited perspective, when we expand that perspective, then it gives you more tools in the toolbox and it makes you a better rider. So power is made up of two things. Pop quiz, what are they? Since you're not in this room, I'll have to answer the pop quiz for you correctly. And we'll just assume that you did. Power is made up of two basic components, force and speed. But since we're pedaling a bike, we're making power in a circle. We're not lifting our butts off the ground. We're not, uh, I should say, we're not squatting a bar off the ground. We're lifting a dumbbell. So we're pushing down on the pedal. That's force in a circle, which is called torque. And we're also pushing um, quickly with a certain rate of force. 
on the pedal, and that is speed, but when we put that in a circle, it's called cadence. So torque times cadence equals, or torques times rotational velocity, you might say, equals power. That's the equation. So what does that mean? We have those two variables we can push on. There are three ways to make more power on the bike, we'll say. One is to push harder, assuming foot speed is constant. The other is to push more quickly, assuming torque stays constant, or you can raise both at the same time. This is our old fable, which I've quoted before, but I just have to quote or recount, I'll say. Apparently, a long time ago, in some Belgian middle school or grade school, Eddie Merckx went to give us a talk to some young Belgian school children who all knew who Eddie was. And if you don't know who Eddie Merckx is, shame on you. History of the sport, go forth and study. Also, you have to know how to spell Merckx, by the way. That's part of the pop quiz. And the little boy said, Mr. Merckx, I want to win my local time trial. Do I push a little gear quickly or do I push a big gear slowly? And of course, Eddie Merckx responded, you push a big gear quickly. So that's a perfect illustration of the relationship between those variables. And so what I'm saying is most people associate going faster on the bike with pushing harder. But when you break cadence or when you break power down into cadence and torque or force and velocity, you understand that there are different ways to pedal a bike and to increase your power output. And where does this play out practically? Well, let's say you're on a road race or really the better example is we'll say a hilly time trial. So you start out on a flat road and there's, we'll say just for the purposes of illustration, there's a balance. We'll say you're 50% torque and 50% velocity. So that might be a cadence of 100, 100 RPM, just to make the math simple, just making up numbers. And we'll say you're at your functional threshold power for this time trial of 30 minutes, we'll call it. And then as you approach a hill, your torque is going to go up and your cadence is going to go down. And this is because of several basic rules of physics. But a few of them are that as you go, as you ride your bike on an incline, you lose momentum and inertia and actually momentum wants to pull you, inertia wants to pull you backwards down the hill. Sorry if I'm butchering, butchering the exact physics terminology here. Someone who's a physicist can come and yell at me. But basically gravity's trying to pull you back down the hill. So how we handle that equation in, in physical space is to increase our torque or lower our cadence. You don't have to, but that's a common response. And so that then we're pushing on the torque lever which means we're emphasizing torque. And when that happens, cadence drops. And so then we've got less cadence. But as you crest the hill, then the way to increase power is to pedal more quickly, not necessarily harder. And this is pretty common. You hear people talk about how if they're trying to do a maximal effort, when the grade gets less steep, if they crest the top of a climb, for example, they struggle to stay on top of the power. Their power drops. And frequently, this is because the relationships of the physics changes. So this is why we have gears on a bike, unless you're riding a single speed, is to enable us to negotiate the physics of the changing environment. Hills, wind, bumpy pavement, smooth pavement, dirt, etc. Downhills. And so in order to be a dynamic cyclist and to maximize your abilities, you got to be able to make effective power in all those conditions and pick the right gear. So having an understanding of the fact that pedaling more quickly can also gain you power or increase power output, assuming torque stays the same, that is, that's a useful piece of information. So start to practice that in your riding. And a simple way to do that is to break some uh, training exercises into extremes of cadence. So we'll talk about that. What I'm going to do is go through five false beliefs about cycling and I drop some knowledge bombs. And then we're going to talk about some pillars of how of cycling and how to apply some of those methods. And one of those will be cadence versus torque. So there's one. The only way to go harder on a bike is to push harder on the pedals. That's a false belief. A second false belief that I hear all the time in cycling is that being a good cyclist is about suffering. 
or otherwise known as the glorification of suffering. And this is based on one of my philosophies, one of my firm beliefs. This is a belief, not a truth, that one of the objectives of cycling is to achieve flow state. It's really the apogee of any high-end practice of sport. It doesn't matter what sport we're talking about. It doesn't matter if we're talking about badminton or surfing. The objective of sport at the highest level is in part, it's when you master the sport, you master the ability to summon flow state during your sport, during your practice. It's not about smashing people. It's not about being the fastest bike rider on the planet. That can be part of your practice. That can be one of your objectives. That can be one of your, your dreams in the sport is to be world champion or to be state champion. But a higher, we'll say platonic form archetype of the sport is to be able to summon flow on command. And suffering is one of the vehicles or one of the methodologies we use to achieve flow state. And suffering can be part of flow state. But for me, people are a bit confused when they glorify suffering. And I think some of this comes about from media images, old school media images, winning magazine, if you've been around for that era of cycling literature, winning magazine is this old school racing publication. And it had these glorious full color photos of Robert Miller, and Lewis Herrera, and writers of this era, you know, we're talking mid eighties, late eighties, early nineties, mid nineties, Tour de France, no helmet, sweat, you know, hairdos, uh, Luft, which is, of course, the amount of, it's, it's how you position your cycling cap on your head. There's a whole Mitch Docker podcast where he asks riders about Luft now and how, what their perspective is. You have to, there's several categories of, you know, to put the brim down, the brim up. Do you barely put the hat on your head? This is a thing that European riders did. Or do you smash it down so it's almost touching your ears? Like uh, Colombian rider Para. I can't remember his first name. Louis Para. Anyway, so different riders have different perspectives on their Luft. And it was a whole thing, right? And it was exposed brake cables and, you know, old school drop bars and all the bits. And this media era played into that glorification of suffering. And I think that riders are a bit confused on this. This is a false belief. Cycling isn't about suffering. The objective of cycling or any sport isn't to manufacture suffering. It's the opposite of that. Cycling is about learning. When you master a sport, you can go really fast on a bike with less suffering and more flow. You can go really fast on a bike. You can ride for 100 miles and get home and not be shattered. The objective is not to pummel yourself. It's the opposite. It's to master the sport so that when you do high workload, you get home and you're not smashed. It's minimum effective dose is the other way to think about it. So when you glorify suffering, when you make that the objective of sport, you're really, what you're doing is you're, you're saying that yang energy is the point. What I'm saying is I want you to apply yang energy, which is dividing, which is conquering, which is doing, which is the masculine aspect of sport. Whether you're a man or a woman, this is the same concept. You apply that, those moments of yang doing, of course, to push your envelope, to expand your abilities. And that, that moment of yang or those moments of yang choices in training, hard intervals, long, hard rides, <clears throat> those will force your envelope and, and make you better. And they may bring about moments of suffering. I'm not saying don't suffer on the bike, but the objective of cycling is to make you stronger and bring you to the point where you can endure or practice the sport at a very high level, go very fast on the bike and not suffer. Think about that as a paradigm reversal. If you're under the belief that cycling is the end goal, in my opinion, you've got some concepts that are teeter-tottered, flippity-floppity. That was an excellent word. I'm going to patent that. Flippity-floppity. This is such a cool thing about having a podcast. You get to make up your own words. 
False belief number three. You are only worthy of a victory if you are the strongest rider in a race. This is a big one. In particular, this is more prominent in, I'll say, American culture than it is in European culture. And I can say this with confidence because I've raced in so many places in my cycling adventures. And there are definitely riders who have a false belief that in order to win a race, you've got to be the strongest person. And this is part of how we conceptualize cycling in our heads. I think that we, again, I try really hard not to imagine how too many people think because I don't know what happens in their heads. I think that's a thing people do. But from conversations I've had, it seems to me that a lot of people glorify the hilly road race that finishes with a climb. And they archetypally think of cycling as a race where that is the ideal, the platonic ideal, the sort of dictionary definition of, let's say Wikipedia definition of cycling is a road race with a lot of climbs in it and the strongest rider is the one who eventually breaks away solo and wins and the second strongest rider crosses the line in second place and the time in minutes and seconds between first and second is a direct parallel indicator of the difference in strength between those riders expanded out into a percentage. And when you look at independent of where you live, if you look at your local competitive calendar and you actually ask yourself how many races there are that fit that description and then look historically at the results and ask yourself how many of the results reflect that actual paradigm, you'll find the percentage probably very, very low. So it's an archetype in our heads, but does it make any sense? Because cycling doesn't often play out that way. And that's why we do it. Because between the unholy blender of factors that make up a bike race, there are a million outcomes on any given day. This is why we pin on a number. When you look at weather and road conditions and punctures and crashes and unpredictability of humans and dogs running into pelotons or horses running into pelotons and all the other things myriad's been coming up a lot i really don't like that word because you can use the word myriad you can say a myriad or myriad and i looked it up and you can do it both ways and that just bothers me like pick an identity word be one or the other not both the english language has so many weird wormholes can you just fix that whoever you are that runs english anyway there's so many different outcomes that we can have or things, factors that impact a race, especially a mass start road race or criterium or circuit race, whatever, even a time trial, that you think a time trial is going to be this locked and loaded thing. And, and many times it is. I mean, Ghana has won a lot of time trials in the last year and a half, but he doesn't win them all. And that just shows you that that's why we pin on a number. Otherwise, you might as well just make it a freaking Zwift race. So... Let's have some actual physics play a role. Let's have some decision-making on the fly. Let's see what happens when a rider misses her feed in the feed zone. How is she going to solve that equation? Is she going to pay someone 20 euros for a bottle? Is she going to go chum up with one of her buddies and get some water? Is she going to extract water from the air vapor? I don't know. Is she just going to turn into a camel? Like this is how These are the equations riders have to solve in the real world. You know, rain jackets still get caught in your front wheel. It's a thing that happens. So what I'm saying is the beautiful, unpredictable outcome of races is a function of so many other factors than just raw strength. And when we archetypally glorify just the strongest rider and we consider them only worthy of riding, of uh, we consider them to be only worthy of winning when they are the strongest, that's a very limited mindset. Cycling is about much more, much many other factors, but also it's a false belief to glorify the strongest rider as the one who's only deserving of winning. And I learned this the hard way when I was a young rider in Europe because there were so many times where I watched riders who sat in all day and then had no problem winning at the end. And some people might consider that not a virtuous or not a worthy victory, but from my perspective, 
And if you're dumb enough to drag me to the line and I'm a smarter sprinter than you or a better sprinter than you, then you deserve to lose. Your objective is to get away from the quicker finishers. Your objective is to drop the people who want to sit on and suck your wheel. That is the game of cycling. And if you just want to plow along and smash everybody at 50k an hour for the last hour of a race and drag them to the line and then get last in the breakaway, but then go to your car and think that you somehow won because you were strongest while the other riders are the ones who get the champagne accolades, podium kisses, and money, then you haven't learned what cycling is at the truest level. Number four, or I'll say, actually, this is 3B. By extension, if you take that same belief system that only the strongest rider is virtue enough, virtuous enough to win, by extension, we can conclude that your strength on the bike equals your self-worth. So play this out. This is something that I think a lot of cyclists struggle with. If you're not the strongest guy in the race, or lady, or you have a really crappy day on the bike, then you feel like you are a worthless human. This is the core of a false belief about cycling. And look, this theme plays out over and over again in human society. I mean, you can say the same thing to someone who's really invested in their academic career. If they're a student and they try really hard and they screw up a test or get a bad grade on a paper, they can apply that grade to their self-worth as though that grade were saying you are a bad human. But the fact is, this is how we learn. We learn by failing. These are our best lessons. Paul Chekhov talks about reprogramming the terminology between winners and losers to winners and learners, which is very tidy and politically correct, and also, I think, a good idea. Because you learn your biggest lessons from your biggest failures. I've got a massive checklist of giant screw-ups I made in races that were really stupid. I mean, just a super quick example. In about 1992, I was chasing on the back of the group over the top of the climb in the Visalia road race about 50 miles in. The group had shattered into, I don't know, four or five big pieces, the Peloton. I think I was in the second group or third group of maybe 12 riders. Barely made it on over the top of the climb with these guys. Actually, I probably got dropped and then cornered up to them on the descent. Turned around to look at the gap between this group that I would, had just tacked onto and the next group, crossed over the wheel of the last rider in front of me and hit the ground, broken collarbone, smashed right there, race over. And that's the kind of mistake you only make once. The next time you turn around in a Peloton, you check your front wheel very closely. Because most people, when they, when they turn around and look over their shoulder, that's my microphone indicating my turning around, and looking over my shoulder, you, most people drift. So I drifted, I hooked a wheel, fell over the wheel of the other rider in front of me, crashed from carbon done. And, and that's a great example. So, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad cyclist because I made that choice. It means I learned a valuable lesson. This is why we sign up for sport. This is what we're doing. This is what we're here to do is get our asses kicked and then learn from it. So when you have a, this belief that you're only a good person when you're winning, that you're only a good person when you're performing at your best, that's a form of, it's a self-defense mechanism because when you beat yourself up relentlessly after you fail at a race or after you get dropped or after you lose a race, maybe you get second and you beat yourself up relentlessly. That's a layer of self-defense because you are Sometimes what people frequently do, and I was guilty of this myself, is I would slaughter myself so hard in my own head that then when anyone else offered me criticism, it paled in significance in comparison to what I had, the, the coals that I had put myself over in my own little mental paradigm. And that's a defense mechanism because when you tear yourself down in your own head enough, then no matter what anyone else says, no other criticism can approach that until that paradigm gets shattered when someone really speaks the truth and they go straight under all that pile of bullshit and call you out on it and then your world is rocked and then your pieces fall, your, your ego crumbles. Your wall of defense has been 
ruptured. Your moat, your castle moat has been punctured. No matter how many alligators you put in your moat, someone can always find a bridge across. So these are the fragile worlds we live in in the world of sport and ego. False belief number four. This will relate to the pillar of breath. To get more oxygen, you need to breathe deeper. What's the problem there? Perhaps I might have a future pod with some breath experts. I've got a few in mind, but we'll have to see about that. A lot of people associate breathing deeper with very superficially the concept of getting more oxygen in your lungs. When you research a bit more about breath science and you start to do breath work, you realize that breathing isn't as much about bringing in O2 as it is CO2 tolerance, and that CO2 tolerance can actually be a healthy part of respiration exchange. So without going down a giant wormhole on breath work, we'll save that for future episodes or whatnot. We can say that if you're breathing really hard when you're going hard and you're, you are breathing unnecess- with unnecessary effort, I'll say, there's a good chance you are over-breathing. It's sort of the same concept as pushing hard on the pedals. And really, both of those go work against the concept of flow state, which means that we're associating going harder with more effort. And mastery of sport is about going harder with less effort. Yes, you have to push, you have to have intent and focus in order to go fast on a bike. But when you start to approach mastery of the sport, the objective of training, one of the objectives of training, I should say one of several, is to learn how to produce a lot of speed on the bike. Ultimately, speed is the end goal, not power, not high heart rate, speed. A lot of speed on the bike with minimal effort. So think about it very, very simply, very, very 50,000 foot view. This is why Taylor Finney talks about doing time trials in the latter part of his career without a power meter. He would just look at speed because what is the objective of a time trial? It's to go fast. All the other stuff is just details, man. So if you have your favorite climb that you like to go up and you time yourself on that climb, you're thinking not just about going as fast as you can from point A to from point A to point B, from the bottom mailbox to the top mailbox. You're thinking about your time and your effort. And so if you have the same time but less effort, that is considered a step forward. That's progress. Not only a faster time and not only more effort. The, what I'm saying is the way to get the faster time isn't always to put out more effort. Sometimes it's actually to put out less effort, which is very counterintuitive. So this goes into the concept of overbreathing. And if you are gasping for air, if you are struggling to find breath all the time, that can be indicative of many things, but one of them can be that you've got bad breathing habits. And if when you take an inhale, a big inhale, your viscera, your guts don't expand and pop out like a happy little pot-bellied Buddha belly, then you're doing it wrong. Stand in the mirror, take a deep breath. If your collarbones go up towards your ears, you have an inverted breathing pattern in your chest breather. Definitely unpack this later, but key points are that if you're breathing wrong, there's some low-hanging fruit in your cycling performance. And not only cycling performance, life performance. And we all want to perform the best we can at life, right? False belief number five. The best path to being a good cyclist is only to ride a bike, to exclusively pedal. This is a big one. There is an old school cycling belief, an Italian wives tale that needs to be assassinated. And this is that if I want to be a really good bike rider, I'm going to ride my bike only and all other things that are physical will take me off that path and make me worse. These things might include walking, running, lifting weights, stretching, doing yoga, doing Eldoa, swinging a kettlebell, playing a racket sport, skiing, take your pick. And this is absolutely a false belief. Now, I'm not here to tell you that riding a bike doesn't make you a faster cyclist. It will to a degree. The problem is over a long enough timeline, it will make you a worse 
athlete and eventually a worse cyclist. This is true for everyone. And if you want evidence of this, don't believe me, think about this paradigm. You want some evidence? Go look on the YouTubes and find videos of Peter Sagan in the gym, Nino Schurter, Kate Courtney. These athletes are demonstrating how it is an essential part of their strength and conditioning program plays a role in their overall conditioning as a cyclist. Why is this true? Because all athletes in all sports at a high enough level will, will induce sports-specific adaptive dysfunction. This is counterbalanced with the said principle, which is well known in strength and conditioning, which is specific adaptation to impose demand. That concept is meant to imply that if you are a shot putter, you need to develop a strength and conditioning program that will specifically train you for the demands of that event, right? You've got to explosively throw or push this heavy object. In order to do that, you're going to have to be able to generate lines of force in certain paths, etc. And you're going to have to be able to do that very quickly with a lot of force. So take that basic concept and apply it to all sports. And when you develop a strength and conditioning program over time, you realize that you can't just only do exactly what your sport requires of you. Meaning, if you want to be a good shot putter, you can't just shot put all the time. You can't just put shots. I don't, I'm talking about stuff I really don't know much about. But we'll just pretend that I do so that we can use the analogy. You can't just lift a heavier, use a heavier and heavier shot and put it where you want it to go. God, this is terrible. Let's use another example. Let's pretend we're using high jump. Because I know dreadfully little about shot put. You can't just go out every day and put the stick at a certain height, 88% of your PR, and then 89 and 89.5, etc., up to 100%, and then go 100.01, etc. We don't do this in every day of training because, first of all, it would imply that you could just endlessly progress and set a PR every day in training, and that's not the way the human body works. Although, strangely enough, this is the way people who use power meters and ride Strava tend to think. So take that application for a moment and apply it to cycling. If you were a high jump coach, would you expect that every day your high jump athlete trains on the track, we'll say six days a week, they could set a PR? No. Well, that doesn't make sense. So how do we regress that training? How do we take it and break it apart into pieces, into modules, and effectively train it. Well, first of all, I can tell you that for someone who's doing something as specific as, shot, as high jump, we can't just have them jump over the bar all the time. We have to have them do other things. We have to break down their sport into different basic core concepts and isolate those concepts and improve them, expand on them, refine them, and then tie them together before competition day. This is how you periodize training. This is the basic concept of how you make a training program. So the same thing is true of cycling. This rule applies to all sports. If you only ride your bike, yes, you can become a really good cyclist. Yes, you will get better. Your power will go up. Your, your threshold will get higher. Your endurance will get higher. Of course, we have to cycle to be better cyclists. But you will never reach your absolute potential as a cyclist as long as you are only riding a bike. And over a really long timeline, which by that I mean maybe months, maybe years, depends on the athlete, your performance will plateau and then it will go down. You'll get worse. I guarantee it. Why? Because all sports bring about sports-specific adaptive dysfunctions. And cycling is one of the best sports at doing that. Some sports are better than others at creating a more balanced athlete. The best example I can think of is cross-country running. If you're running over technical loose terrain, trails with rocks and logs and ups and downs, and you're not doing excess, excessive volume, arguably you could do that long-term without too many other things happening, 
assuming you had a relatively good physiological baseline and structural baseline to begin with, and you did not progress the training too quickly. Why do I say that? Pretty simple. Because humans were evolved or engineered without going down a rabbit hole of creationism versus other to walk and run. That's what our primary physical function is. So if you get that momentum rolling without too much craziness, meaning without too many dysfunctions, too many hours of sitting in an office chair or flying an airplane or driving a desk, for example, or too much cycling. If you have a good physiological baseline and you started that, that activity, you could probably grow and get better at running just by running, but that's probably about the only one. Any other sport, racket sports, cross-country skiing, cycling in particular. Why cycling so much? Because it is so limited. It's a repetitive endurance exercise exclusively in the sagittal plane under a very small range of motion, but it requires uh, the list of functional demands are actually quite high. But doing more riding doesn't address those functional demands. You have to address those off the bike. So this is false belief number five, that only riding a bike is the best way to make you a better cyclist. If you believe that paradigm, you're straight up wrong, I'm going to tell you. Pillars of cycling. Here are some, some basics I want to outline, and these relate to these false beliefs. So, what are we talking about? We're talking about cadence and torque and the relationship they're in, and I've outlined this a bit, but I want to give you a few specifics. The reason cadence and torque are pillars of cycling is because you have to be able to take that, the basics of the sport, and expand them out. Break them down into their fundamental elements and train those elements. And if you can't maintain certain basic, you can't meet certain basic demands of these aspects of cycling, then you're never going to achieve your potential. A great time to work on this is in the part of your season which is farther away from your competitive goal farther on your orbit not necessarily the direct opposite end of your orbit but the further you are from the specifics of your race the the more benefit you'll get from taking these basic concepts and expanding them out and focusing on them for a while so when we talk about torque we're talking about pedaling with a lot of force on the pedals so low cadence high force the best way to do this is on a very steep climb. If you live in a flat place, then you've got to make do with what you've got. You can use big gears into a headwind. It won't quite be the same because the physics are different, but it'll be better than not doing it. When you practice high torque riding, I'll just give you a practical application to this. You have to be able to work up to it. There are certain key points we want to maintain and keep in our heads. A few pointers I'll give you. Practically speaking, if we want to work on torque as a fundamental pillar of our cycling ability, a good way to do that would be to do some low cadence, high torque intervals on a climb. I would suggest starting off with, I'm just giving you some loose guidelines here and I'll give you some disclaimers. You might start off with a four by five minute in about zone three power targeting 50 to 55 rpm if this is something you feel is way out of your wheelhouse proceed with caution if you have a history of knee or back pain proceed with caution your bike better be set up right for you to do this type of work if you are subject to excessive pronation or supination meaning your knees hit the top tubes or you don't have the hip flexibility to keep your knees from flailing out to the sides like a v-shape this probably isn't the best drill for you but as we learn to generate high amounts of torque at a sustained pace on the bike this can really help you refine pedal technique it gives you an opportunity to focus on my how to pedal the bike recommendations and it will also help your muscle fibers we'll say contract more forcefully 
on each pedal stroke, which gives you a little more flexibility metabolically and mechanically during hard moments of racing. And the whole point of training is to train your body to be durable enough to withstand the demands of competition. We want to go beyond what you have to produce. So you probably will never be in a race situation where you're riding at that high of a torque or low of a cadence for that long. And that's why we want to be able to do that in training so that on race day, you can handle the demands of the event. If you, if these are going well and you can do these effectively, you might progress to about three by 10 minute at 50 to 55 RPM. Again, probably zone three power. Some notes. Once again, if your knees are hitting the top tube, stop doing it. Examine why that's the case. Work on your hip stability. Work on your knee tracking. If you're getting knee pain or back pain during these efforts, stop immediately. Also, before and after these efforts, ride on the flats and make like a hummingbird. 100, 110 RPM. Flush out your muscles. This can be really high demand if you've never done this type of work before. And these are just suggestions for a, a work format that may work for some athletes, but you have to interpret it in the context of your own training. If this is way harder than something you've ever done, then dial it back. If this work is within your wheelhouse because you're a mountain biker and you've done a lot of low cadence high torque work already, then you might find the extended effort, the constant high torque is the challenge. So mountain bikers might have moments of low, of high torque, low cadence here and there when they're on steep moments of trail or working their way up technical terrain, for example. But this type of work is the intention is to have a very constant power and a constant muscle tension. That's really the objective. It's constant fiber tension. So that's one suggestion. At the opposite end of the spectrum, we could work up to a four by five or a three by 10 at high cadence, same power, about zone three, right? So that's uh, in a five zone model, I should specify. So just uh, you know, a tick below your TT pace or your FTP. And 120 RPM will be quite aggressive for some riders. Some might be able to do 125 or 130. Most people tend to have quite a bit of butt bouncing around 125, 130 RPM, especially for that duration. If you can't maintain that type of cadence for that duration, trim it down. You might try a three by five minute or even a five by three minute. And for the rest intervals, we're talking zone one, you know, normal cadence, 90, 95 RPM, 100 RPM. Let your muscles relax a little bit. And the purpose of these efforts is to give your legs that supple muscle. It also is going to place an increased demand on the aerobic system. So when we push on these levers of torque and cadence, you can anticipate certain things. Even though you are doing zone three power in both of these efforts, you're going to get a much lower heart rate at high torque because you're putting more demand on the muscular system and less on the aerobic system. Conversely, when you are doing the high cadence efforts, your heart rate's going to get quite high. You might easily see zone four heart rate at 120 RPM for a 10 minute effort easily. So understand that that's a normal physiological response. Remember power is your output. Heart rate is your body's response to that workload. As you increase cadence, that influences heart rate. Just as when you increase breathing rate, that, that can increase heart rate. Even if you're just sitting in a chair. The choices we make on the bike influence our body's response to that workload to a degree. So even on a central nervous system level, that's what I'm trying to say. So these pillars are really important, torque and cadence, understanding the relationship between the two of them. And I'm not saying everyone has to do all these all the time, but if you're an athlete who gravitates towards high torque efforts, you might really benefit from focusing on cadence especially on the part of your orbit that's further away from your dream goal or objective race. 
Likewise, if you're an athlete who's always one or two gears lighter than everyone else in the peloton, and when you get to the steep climb, you're kind of struggling to make power, that tells us you need to work on your capacity to maintain muscle fiber tension and generate more force over a longer timeline. These are pillars. So expand on these. And I think Swift land is a big danger zone for this because we tend to, every ride turns into a race or a group ride, and then you're going to self-select the cadence that's going to get you the best watts per kilo. And your cadence range tends to get really narrow, but also on the trainer, I've noticed that people's cadences tend to kind of end up on a slow decline. They gravitate down, 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 down. And in particular in the early season, when you start riding outside on the road, if you haven't been focusing on cadence for a while, it's something that I find needs attention. So if you're riding along on the flats, most of the time, I would say 100 RPM is a good baseline target for most athletes, especially early season. You're gonna, it's going to help you develop subtle, uh, supple muscle. And think about it simply. If you do a two-hour ride at 80 RPM or a two-hour ride at 100 RPM, that's a lot more pedal strokes. Now, that's, and if you do it at the same power, right, what, what is the end result? It's a lot more firing of the muscles. And the muscle will be forced to be, become supple and adapt to that quick pedal stroke. And this is a very old school line of thought. So this is why I say I'm not new school, I'm not old school. Old school, I am all school, which is me gratuitously stealing a line from KRS-One. And what I mean by that is we have a lot of powerful lessons we can learn from the grandmasters of the sport. Those who do not study the past are condemned to repeat it or maybe not learn from it. So when we hear about European riders who used to get on the bike, take two months off and then get on and do nothing except ride flat 100K rides in a 39.19 for hours on end to build their supple muscle and their ability to become hummingbird-like on the bike, well, there's something to that. Those are two pillars, torque and cadence. Another is flow state, and I spoke about this earlier as well. But I just want to reemphasize that one of the basic objectives of cycling, of all sport, is to work towards a higher proportion of flow state in your practice of sport. That's what we're doing. We're not here to suffer more betterer. We're not here to add more moments of threshold. We're not here to go up every climb with a pain face. When you make a pain face on the bike, when you breathe through your mouth relentlessly, when you are always at the top of a zone in any given moment, or always trying to push your effort level up, up, up to the higher floor of the elevator, you're yanging yourself to death, but which is depletive, right? You're going to deplete yourself over a long enough timeline for sure. And yes, we have to deplete ourselves to a degree to push the envelope and make ourselves better. But when you do that in balance, you progress at a sustainable rate and you eventually find a higher proportion of your rides being in flow state, which means you can go quite fast on the bike with less effort. The objective is to actually use less effort for riding over a long enough timeline. That's when you know you're getting good. When you go on a ride that where your average speed is quite high and you do quite a bit of hard terrain, we'll say, and you get home, you think about it, and there were only a handful of moments of actual suffering, you would say. The last two pillars I want to cover are breathing and physiological durability, we'll say. Back to our breath technique. Again, if you take a big inhale and your viscera do not distend, then you need some practice on your breath work. You need to visit some fundamentals. And I'll say that both men and women in our society have been trained not to do this. The textbook example of how to not breathe correctly is to sign up for a sport that is intensely aesthetic. And the easiest example is ballet. 
ballet dancers are taught to have an hourglass shape in the mirror at all times, even under the hardest effort. And when you do that, you contract your transverse abdominis and your rectus abdominis, the two most superficial muscles of the core, to keep your viscera from popping out at all costs. And then you're forced to breathe. And so as a result of that, you start to use the upper muscles of the neck, the scalenes normally, and some other muscles to lift the lungs and give you some breath into your chest. And this is a reverse breathing pattern. And when you learn to breathe this way, it can really be disruptive to the nervous system. It causes challenges. It also is related to core function. So just to unpack this briefly, think about your inner core, your deep core as a box. And this box is your, your box of power. This is where you get all the, the magic exchange of gases, gaseous exchange happening, let's say. And the box has four sides. The back is made up of multifidus, which are two long muscles that go up and down the spine, parallel the spine. The bottom is your pelvic floor. The front side is transverse abdominis, which is your cummerbund muscle. So if you went to high school prom and you rented a tux, it is the muscle that looks like your cummerbund. It's a fun word, isn't it? Cummerbund. And the fibers run horizontally, not vertically. They run horizontally, and it basically goes from one hip to the other behind your belly button. That is the deep muscle of the front side of your core. And then the top of this core box, this inner, inner unit box, is your diaphragm. Your diaphragm plays two roles. Because it's the top of this core box, it helps stabilize your spine under load. So when you push really hard on the pedals and pull really hard on that bar, if that inner box is not strong and also isn't turned on, then your hips are going to move, twist, rotate. Your rib cage is going to twist or rotate in a way that's not favorable. Or you won't be able to keep alignment between your hips and your shoulders. And this is really important if you want to ride a bike fast. But what's interesting about the diaphragm is it also is the primary muscle of respiration. When you breathe, you ideally ought to recruit the diaphragm first, which means it contracts and pushes down. The diaphragm is like an umbrella, and it separates the upper part of your torso from the bottom part of your torso. When that umbrella squeezes, it pushes down and squeezes together, and then your guts get pushed out. That's why when you take an inhale... Your diaphragm contracts and it pushes your viscera out and your Buddha belly appears. It should look like you swallowed, swallowed a watermelon. If you've ever looked through photos of pros racing and you wonder why sometimes they look like they're pregnant, that's why. There are some great photos, examples of this. So the first two-thirds of your breath ought to push out your viscera. The last third, we can see expansion of the chest and that should primarily be out in 360 degree direction from your pectorals and also from, we should see your scapula move a little bit and your ribs move on the sides. If we see your collarbones rising up too much, that's an indication that you've got a reverse breathing pattern or that you're relying on some ancillary muscles to enact your breathing technique, which is not ideal. So this is really important for a bunch of reasons. You see this. We want ideal, optimal gaseous exchange. We don't want someone to be limited by their breath technique. If these muscles are super locked down from years of you trying to have this perfect core, then undoing that tension can require a lot of central nervous system training. And if you want some resources on that, uh, search Paul Check on YouTube, Breathing Technique. He's got a lot, a big series of videos. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes. I think he's got a six-part video series on how to breathe, if I remember correctly. A lot of good information on that. So both men and women can be subject to this breathing fault. Uh, women, because they want their bikini body. Having a belly is, in Western culture, seen to be unsightly, not playboy figure-ish, however you want to put it. 
And for men, it's the same thing. I, I have this issue. I had to retrain my own breath pattern. Years ago, I worked with a guy named Ed Harold who helped me figure out how bad my breathing pattern was. And it was pretty eye-opening. But, you know, my dad died when I was 12 of heart disease. He was obese. So I have a pretty strong drive not to have weight gain be part of my future. And part of that, if I do start to gain a little bit of weight, it always goes to my hips and belly first. And I've basically been within an eight-pound range since high school. So then holding that one off with my diet and lifestyle choices and exercise choices thus far, we'll see what the future holds. But I will say that for me, if I perceive that my belly pops out, there are moments where I have to put myself in check and look honestly in the mirror and say, is that me breathing correctly or did I have too many cookies? Not that I ever eat gluten. See Trevor's episode with gluten. Let's synopsize this part on this section on breathing by saying that if you have a breathing dysfunction, you have a core dysfunction. So it's at least three birds with one rock. I don't recommend throwing rocks at birds because I like birds, but metaphorically speaking, we want your core to be stable while you're riding a bike. We want you to be able to transmit the force from your legs into your arms when you stand up on the pedals and pull hard on those bars. And if that's a floppy water canoe moving around in there, that's not going to go well. So we need core strength. Or as Paul would say, actually, I got to insert this quote, this famous Paul Check quote that's just perfect. You can't fire a cannon from a canoe. So if you have an unstable core, you're not going to make strong power. You can have the world's strongest legs, but if your core sucks, you're going to be missing some of the execution, even in the saddle, to make that power go. And it's so easy for us to focus all the time on making our legs stronger, stronger, stronger. But you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. So... If you have a breathing dysfunction, you have a core dysfunction. And that is because if the diaphragm is not firing properly or the action of the diaphragm is inhibited during deep inhales, then your inner core unit is not firing properly. There's a rhythm and a flow to that whole interaction. You can breathe deeply and effectively while having proper core tension. This is the magic of endurance cycling or endurance sport, we'll say. If you need some resources on breath work, I would suggest starting with Paul's videos. There's also a ton of stuff out there. Uh, Ed Harold is another person I've worked with a bit, and he's got some good podcasts. So I'll, put, I'll drop a note to his website and some of his pods in the show notes also. Also, my wife is a SOMA instructor, and that's a breath work program that's very effective. What's cool about that is the program uses timing. It You breathe in beats. And there are some free seven-day trial programs you can do on SOMA as well. So if you want a, a good segue into something to practice in your own life and check out a pathway, if you need a good pathway to check out some breath work and play with it a little bit, experiment, see where you're at, the SOMA seven-day free program is an excellent starting point in my opinion. I'm giving that to a few of my writers for sure. The final pillar that I want to cover, cover, which relates to our false belief paradigm is that of physiological durability. And that is related to our false belief of the best way to be a cyclist is to only ride your bike. We have to make our bodies durable enough to handle the demands of our sport and our sport cycling specifically is one that makes bodies less durable. It ingrains movement patterns and makes people not capable of handling other anything other than riding a bike. And this comes down in part to the glorification of the World Tour Pro, the emaciated European road pro with no upper body musculature who can barely do a pull-up or maybe even a push-up and can't lift their own 5-kilogram road bike onto the roof rack. Not that a pro would ever stoop to such menial labor. Sorry, 6.8 kilograms, UCI minimum. So if you can't lift a road bike above your head and get it on your roof rack, you've got problems. If you can't 
walk, I'll say for 60 minutes without getting sore or having back or hip soreness. If you can't run for 30 minutes at a jogging, comfortable jogging pace, that's a warning sign. Running and walking are primary. They're fundamentals for human movement and existence. And if you're riding your bike so much that you can't run and walk without back pain, that is a serious alarm bell. Stop riding your bike and start walking. That's what I would say. Walking is fundamental. You're going to be walking long after you're done being a bike rider. And you've got to walk to get to your refrigerator and get to your toilet before you got to go for a bike ride. So let's get our priorities straight here. I will also say that in terms of physiological durability, not everyone needs to be able to swing a 35-pound kettlebell for 100 reps without falling over. But you should be able to do basic things. Body weight strength, at least competence, if not mastery of body weight strength for basic movements is a necessity. Squats, lunges, pull-ups, dips, push-ups. Basic control of core. These are fundamentals. If you can't do these things, this is a warning sign. If you are the type of rider who makes a three millimeter change to your cleats and it gives you instant knee pain, this is a warning sign. This means you've been riding too much and not doing enough other stuff. So I invite you to take a critical look at your own function, your own physiology, your own basic biomechanics and think critically look honestly at yourself if you're riding your bike so much that you can't do anything else without pain discomfort or risk of injury that's a sign that things have gotten out of balance and look we all aspire to be better on the bike but this is what i'm here to tell you i'm dispelling this false belief only riding your bike isn't the way to become a super fast bike rider Only riding your bike is a way to become a dysfunctional athlete and to eventually shoot yourself in the foot. Thanks for listening to my ramblings. Things are busy here at the Fast Talk Labs and everybody's got projects and videos and all the things to do. So we'll see if I can get Chris on my show in the future to be my cohort. Thanks for listening. If you have comments on this, I invite you to go to the Fast Talk Labs forum, find the page for this episode, which will be titled False Beliefs About Cycling, and post a question, post a comment. Uh, Do you think I'm full of it? Do you have something to, to say, respectfully, a differing opinion? I invite you to go forth. And the reason we're directing comments more towards the forum as a reminder instead of to me personally is so that your comments can help other people who want to read them. Thank you for joining me. I am grateful for your presence and attention. Have yourself a lovely day.